Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today's lesson is Pathfinder 210, Jamming Philosophies. This is part of our 200 series all about jamming the game. Is it 210 or 210? How does that work? I'd say 210. Because you know it's like 208, 209, now we got to 210. And that could be yeah. next one's 211 then, not 211? Yeah. I never um, heard it said like that, but then again, I don't think I've ever heard anyone actually say like 101 or 102 in <laughs> right, real life. Right, right. I've heard I 101 because like I used to be a firefighter, and listen, guys, I wasn't the best, but I was still a firefighter, and I passed 101, so take that, everyone who said I couldn't do it, who was no one, and we called it path, uh, Pathfinder, we called it Firefighter 101, that was what everyone called it. So this one, I'm very excited. I've said before in our previous episode that the last three episodes of the 200 series all kind of come together to make a complete package. So this is part two. This is about our personal philosophies. I think we're going to we're gonna butt heads a little bit here. We have to because this is stuff that I'm not going to tell you this is the way to do it, but I'm going to tell you this is the way I think you should do it. So I'm going to impose everything I believe on you right now. So get ready for that. For the next 30 minutes to an hour, it's going to be me and Christian saying, this is the way we think it is, and you're wrong. <laughs> there, I don't think there's any ways that are inherently wrong to have a philosophy, but there are some that I think universally people just don't like. For instance, like the philosophy of uh, GM versus PC. That's a philosophy some GMs have that I don't think any piece, maybe some people do. I could be wrong, but I don't think like really the vast majority, 99% of people don't enjoy their DM just constantly trying to kill them because they can. Right, right, right. But certainly there are those people. There is still that 1%. All right. If we know anything about America, it's about the 1%. Exactly. <laughs> Let's start off with something that's very controversial, and that is our philosophies on dice and whether or not we're beholden to them. This is a big point of contention among our fellow GMs and their PCs. How are you going to handle the result that the GM rolls behind the screen? Theoretically, the screen is there so that you can make certain secret rolls. I think like a sense motive roll is something that you roll in secret because you don't want your players to know whether or not they actually deciphered a lie by what their result was. You, They need to believe you just based on what the result was without them knowing the result. And there's a bunch of different roles like that that you have to do in secret, and you keep stuff back there like the monsters hit dice and all his stats you don't want your players to see. But another thing that a GM screen or being behind the computer that you can make secret roles like on Roll20 is that you can what we call fudging. You can make up the result of your dice, and some GMs do this and some do not. First off, before we get anywhere, I think it's widely accepted that the PCs, it's always wrong whenever the PCs fudge. No matter right. what. Actually, no, not PCs. That's wrong. Players. It's player characters. Listen, guys. Definitions. But it's wrong when your players do it. I think everyone agrees with that. Would you agree with that, Christian? Oh, definitely. But as for the GM, there's a couple things you can do here. You can follow the exact dice results, which is if I roll the crit nine times in a row with these goblins that don't mean anything to the story, too bad. It's happened. I'm going to be beholden to what the dice tell me. This can be difficult to do, even if you want to do this, because it really requires you to have stats for everything the party encounters. And a lot of the times, the party's going to go against something that you weren't expecting, and you might have to quick make up a stat. So it makes it more difficult when you need to roll that NPC stealth check when you have to make up the stealth check. So it's not always easy to keep to if you want to. It's not something I'm a big fan of because it's just leaving everything up to RNG. And, you know, I've played Hearthstone. I've had my fill of RNG for my entire lifeline <laughs> through my ladder climbing experience. A little salty but, in here. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, 
I think adhering to the dice is important to an extent, but like it's random chance. The dice might end up telling a terrible story that no one wants to listen to. Like, yeah, no one wants to hear the story where you walk into a cave and the drunk goblin stabs you in the ankle and it like you get tetanus and die. Like that's not a very interesting <laughs> story you want to listen to. Unless unless you're Achilles, because then that's the only way you can die. I thought you would just be paralyzed if your Achilles heel gets cut. But Achilles couldn't reasonably call it Achilles heels because that was the only vulnerable part in his body. He was dipped into oh, right, a pool right. that made him invincible. But when he was dipped into it, the person had their fingers around his ankle it's the or their heel. So I, I was actually just thinking really gory stuff where like, you know, goblins are cutting people's Achilles heels. Yeah, I had my mind somewhere else at the time. It's like we're in Hostel. You ever seen that movie? Yeah. The, the freaking like the fake doctor dude is like, I shake my handshakes. So they want me to be a doctor. Oh, I'm so slighted. Cuts the guy's heels, his tendons, his Achilles, so he can't walk. He's like, okay, go ahead, run away. And the guy tries and falls over. Now imagine that movie where that guy's a goblin. <laughs> Very different movie. Much more entertaining, I think. <laughs> um, I've actually tried this before. I've tried to follow the dice, the exact results, because I think sometimes your players might feel a little bit robbed when they find out what that wasn't. You just made up that role. And so I was like, all right, I need to try to figure out a way. And there's this role-playing game. I can't remember what it was. It's like Numenera, maybe. Uh, I think oh, yeah, actually, I think it's Numenera. Yeah. I think it might be Numenera. Hi, I, I, was, I spent like freaking three or four days trying to remember what it was for the notes here and couldn't remember. But all of a sudden, now that we're recording, I remember. In Numenera, uh, one, one of the things that the GM has the ability to do is what's called a GM intervention. He gives a player who he's going to treat real bad uh, uh, some experience points, and he allows that player to give any other player an experience points, and the GM gets to intervene with something. So if the player makes a successful attack is going to kill the goblin, to keep with that illustration, the GM can say, actually, GM intervention, the goblin dodges, and he has dynamite on him, and he explodes. Give yourself XP and give it to somebody else. And I really enjoyed the story moments that could be created with that. I was listening to a role play with um, DJ Wee. Uh, it was really fantastic. I recommend listening to it or watching it on YouTube. I wish they made a podcast of it. But uh, it was really cool seeing like they would make things like, you know, John's be a big jerk. And if he if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be in this situation. So I'm going to give it to Sally. Sally, here's your extra XP. Go to hell, Jim. You know, something like that. Uh, it was just really fun. And I and I tried to kind of adapt that for Pathfinder. What I did was uh, there's a, a thing called like a hero point or something. And I kind of modify it where essentially my players get one luck point at the start of the game. And they get to choose to re-roll or make an enemy re-roll at any given point. And they get a, they when they lose the luck point, it's gone. Every time I intervene, they get a new luck point. So I could just, I was rolling in front of them so they could see it. And I would actually be like, okay, well, even though that roll happened, GM intervention, take a luck point. Here's what's actually going to happen. Did not go well. My players did not react very well to it, no matter when I did it. You'll actually hear at the very, very end of Trailblazers, like the last maybe three or four sessions of the final uh, chapter, I, I introduced it and, and it didn't really work out. And I was kind of disappointed because I like the idea of just rolling in front of the players. There's something so cool about roll 20 when you just see the GM roll and you know he cannot be bullcrapping me. This is the actual result. There's something, as a player, satisfying to see that. So I'll give it that much credit. So when it comes to following dice results exactly, what is your philosophy on it? It's actually not something I can really make rules for. It's just a case-by-case basis. Uh, let me let me compare it to child pornography. The Supreme Court said... What? <laughs> here, 
You, you don't want to use the. They're gonna like audio sample the recording. We're on Caleb so many delicious recordings. To channel pornography. <laughs> the Supreme Court ruled they had to make a ruling because there was like these. This family had pictures of their kids in the bathtub. Listen, I think we all have these embarrassing pictures. Like, mom, don't show the photograph book. I got a picture of me in the bathtub there. Mom, oh, it's my girlfriend. You know, everyone has that, right? And they were trying to to rule whether or not that was child pornography. It's a child, and you see his parts. What do you do about this? And you know what the Supreme Court ruled after much deliberation? We can't make a rule. You, you'll you'll know it when you see it. Literally, guys, the highest court in the land said, whatever, case-by-case case basis. I, I have the same rule here for my delight, my dice philosophy. Case-by-case case basis. If I'm feeling like, you know, the, the goblins are fighting and they're having fun, and maybe I want him to have that crit, fine, I'll let him crit. Maybe I don't. Maybe the story, I really want the story to go a certain way. Then then I don't even bother, or I'll roll and, and just say the number, just so that my players don't know when I'm cheating and when I'm not. Um, but it's it's really weird because I feel like I still make that roll. I don't want my players to know when I am and I'm not fudging. A lot of times my players go through a game thinking that they really accomplished something uh, by chance. And I know secretly it wasn't really completely by chance. I had made some rolls to make this happen because it would have been epic. But then there's times when like my players might just die and I'm not going to fudge any rolls. It's like at this time, you know what? I'm going to make it as... As real as it can be, rolls are rolls. And in, in, in Trailblazers, spoiler for near, near the end of chapter one, uh, one of my players was fighting a Vrock, which is like this demon vulture creature, right? And the, the thing grabbed him and flew him way up in the sky and was going to drop him. I'm like, this is, was an epic moment. And I didn't fudge any dice rolls. I just thought it'd be cool. My, you know, he, I had stats from the bestiary, so I didn't have to make up anything. And so when the guy tried to beat his CMD, there was the real CMD. I let him try it. And they ended up just amazingly somehow saving the player from dying using like a really contrived cool way and i may have been a little bit lenient with like what how many actions they can make in a turn because it was just a cool idea and i like to facilitate their cool ideas but i let the roles be the roles and there's other times when it's just like i gotta i'm gonna make the call that it's gonna happen the way i want it to happen it's the same idea with like you don't make your players make perception checks or something you want them to see because then you're just gonna try to figure out a way like oh the dc was three look at that it's just like you just tell your players. <laughs> the whole point is I'm trying to make a cool story for them, and this is a cool story moment that I know I want to happen. But it doesn't negate fun, weird choices that the players do or that the NPCs roll where just something goes crazy. I want that to still be in the game. So I can't give you a rule, but case-by-case case basis. What about you, Christian? If I had to like sum it up in a rule of thumb is... I try and follow the dice as much as possible, except when it's stupid. <laughs> stupid being a term completely subjective to me. I just try to minimize it because, like you said, when it is authentic, the players don't always know it's authentic, but they get that feeling. Like they, mm-hmm. they sometimes know subconsciously or maybe even consciously, like, yeah, that was really authentic. And those feel a lot better than when they have to stop and think, like, did we really succeed at that? Was that really us? I can give you kind of a rule of thumb of one of the, the, areas where I will just go by the roles and that's in like a final part of a season or of a campaign the final dungeon or the final boss fight I will let just what happens happens because I think at that point like usually in my games they end up going pretty high level at that point everyone is so crazy overpowered they've got so many tools in their chest it's just cool to see what they're just going to pull out to try to get out of a situation or what awesome fantastic things they're going to pull or the monsters are going to pull I'm going to do just quick Two examples of when I have fudged the dice when I deem something stupid. Um, one was in Rise of the Rune Lords. There's a boss fight that is notorious for being incredibly difficult and 
potentially causing TPKs. So this is already a really hard boss fight. The first person the boss attacks, she gets a crit on. And it's with the long spear, and the long spear has a time stream multiplier, and just straight up, before anyone got to move, this person was just gonna obliterate this person, completely one-shot them, kill the character outright, with just one attack, in a fight that was already going to be very difficult for him to win. So, I just, she just didn't crit. I wasn't gonna have that. I thought that was gonna be <laughs> stupid. Right. Like, why make something that's already maybe going to TPK them? Just definitely TPK them. Right. <laughs> the other one was a mixture of two things. It was like... <laughs> It was like compulsive lying. It was compulsive fudging. Uh, my players were fighting a dragon, and they were kicking its ass way too fast. And I was like, okay, so the dragon just has a few more hit points than it did before. And then when it actually got to take its turn, it crit someone was going to one-shot them from nowhere with a full-round action. So I just didn't do the crit again. Gotcha. It's typically when crits tend to kill someone from, like, full HP is when I don't do it. And you know what? You have to remember that your players can't fudge something to be less cool than it is if they get two crits in a row they get two crits in a row that's what happens they don't have the privilege like you do to change it so you're already on the bad side here so it's fine i think in my opinion to change some things to even it up or make it more epic or more interesting or or cool for the story i mean when the player also rolls you know consecutive one twos and threes for five rolls in a row they also can't fudge that so that's kind of a double-edged sword there right the whole the gm's book has tables pages of tables of cool uh like deep percentile roles where you can help create a story and it's really really cool i've i've not used it myself but i i I, one day i just gotta see my problem is i already have like a lot of cool stuff i already have planned so i don't need the um like the help the way i I particularly run my stories but if i was to do like an open world game like in last episode we talked about you can have linear open world that kind of stuff i was doing open world those tables would be uh my best friend so those are cool to use that. And, you know, sometimes like these tables, these are the kind of things where it's like when they go to bed, roll a deep percentile to see if anything interesting happens. Someone comes in the middle of the night, some random burglar or whatever. There will be times when I, at the beginning of my my um, career, I would always roll that deep percentile regardless of what the result was. I'd had what was going to happen is going to happen. If I want somebody to meet in the middle of the night, it's going to happen. And I did just to keep my players on their toes to, oh, any night, what could happen? Nowadays, I don't do that. It's just like part of the story. There's no reason to try to, why do I have to, to lie to them and try to fool them? I, I don't see the sense of that anymore. Or uh, it's like some of the players ask you, are there any goblins? Uh, we keep using goblins. No more goblins. <laughs> are there any elves in this town? You'll roll a deeper percentile and be like, um, 51 or above, there's, uh, there's elves. Yep, there's elves in this town. I like to, since I have my whole world already kind of generated and built, or maybe if even like if you had like a pre-made, it tells you, um, I tell you whether or not it's there. I don't have to roll a deep percentile. But again, I'm not running an open world kind of story. I always have stuff planned in advance. Stuff, And you'll hear more about that in our next episode, 211 Storytelling Tips. But my conclusion about the dice philosophies is the dice don't tell me what to do. They tell the PCs what to do. They are beholden to the dice results. I am not. It is my tool. And for me, it's follow the dice as much as you can, but don't let them ruin or derail a story or tell a really boring story. I like what you say in the show notes. Dice are a guide. You aren't obligated to follow them. Right. I'm really good at writing, but not so good at the speaky. (laughs) I'm glad we have an audio medium. (laughs) Uh, Well, we agree on that, Christian. Look at that, huh? Huh. I wonder how long that'll last. (laughs) If if past trailblaze... if, Path, if past Pathfinder Academies have taught me anything, it's actually a lot. We have a lot of agreement. 
in our stuff. Yeah, Pat, if they've taught me anything, it's we're going to agree on most things, and there's going to be one thing where you vehemently disagree with me about, and then you yell at me. <laughs> Shut up, Big Nose. All right, let's talk about <laughs> choice and story guidance. This is a big, another hot topic button uh, issue. Is a hot topic button? Is that a thing to say? Did I just make up a thing? Guys, we're saying a new thing. We're saying hot topic buttons. Get over it. This hot I mean, I have button. I have buttons in my on my clothes from Hot Topic. Well, that I haven't thrown you out since never high school. Admit that. Um, <laughs> do you give? I your, have some trips behind me right now. <laughs> do you give your players real choice? How do you handle real choice? Even the core rulebook talks about the illusion of choice to help get a story where it's going to go. For me, my entire Pathfinder career has been story driven. As a GM, anyway, has been story driven. And I've played in some games that are not story-driven, but for me, when I gem, it's com- I have a story. I have a beginning and end where I want to go to. And that that macro is out of the player's control. The overarching story is I made that, I controlled it. One of my games, my players had to collect a certain amount of items, very special magical items, and to use them all to break into this super-secret vault and to get very, very, very powerful items. My overarching plan was that they were going to collect all five of them and they were going to go to there. And then I had an ending with the boss that was going to fight them. And then they were going to go forward in time. That was what was going to happen. That was in my control. And of course, and we'll talk more about in our next episode, you know, like feeling out what your players are enjoying, what they want. And my players showed that they wanted to collect these items. I didn't just force it. I'm like, I don't care what you want. You're going to find these items. They showed interest. And so I continued that. If they didn't show interest, I would have found a different story for to go through. But micro, the micro part of the story is completely in their control. I let them go about it however they want to. Our last episode, we talked about linear open world. And what was the other one? And nonlinear, and I was very nonlinear. This is the whole fits right into the nonlinear. They they choose after the dragon attacks. Do you get a new weapon? Do you increase defenses? Do you go find them? It's up to my players, and they get to pick how they're going to go about doing this. And I leave it all up to them. And that's where I really let my players take control and build the story with me. So like with the collecting the five or six items. I didn't plan each encounter way ahead of time, like the this magical scissors they're going to get in this encounter, the magical glove they're going to get in this encounter. And I know that as they played, I found out like interesting things to do and, oh, they haven't kind of faced this sort of thing yet. So I made it this way, all based on what they had done in like the last session. And just the overarching story just kind of was the frame that they got to fill in. That's a good way to think of it. I like that. You have these really important keys to the story, your keys to success, and they're, you know, dotted around the story. And then the players, you know, they fill in their own parts of it, reaching those different points of the plot. And then, you know, you don't even have to completely develop those points in the plot. You can develop around those plot points as they get closer to them. Another time uh, I had my players, they were killing, they hunt down four gods to go back in time. In our next session, we're going to talk all about time travel. I'm really excited to talk to you about that, guys, because I learned some really cool lessons about time travel from my players. So the overarching story was that. Kill four gods, go back in time. I know which god had to be the last god uh, because he was like the big guy who taunted them from the very beginning of the story, Bahamut. And the micro of how they got out of the main city they started in, how they got to found out about where the gods were, how did they got equipped to go fight them. Each time was completely up to them. And I took cues from what they were enjoying and they were liking. And I had like nice little subplots. And that's like a big thing we'll talk about in storytelling tips, having subplots and letting your players decide if they want to follow them or not. Completely up to them. But again, I had it. This is what they were going to kill these four gods. If, you know, they didn't TPK every time. (laughs) But I do have some exceptions to this. 
Um, and Trailblazers, you might have noticed in Chapter 2, our players kind of, uh, not stagnated, but they were kind of stuck. They didn't know quite what to do next. And sometimes you kind of have to feed your players if, you know, each player's each player group is differently. And this specific group of mine weren't really go-getters. They weren't didn't have a lot of initiative. So I kind of fed them a thing or two until they, they hooked onto something. And once my players hooked onto something, like when you create a story, once you finally hit that one thing, like, yes, they're going to fight the four gods and they're going to go back in time. And then all of a sudden the story completely fails out and you know what to do. Once they got that hook, my players didn't need the feeding anymore and I could back up and let them retake control of the micro part of the story. And I almost always plan endings. I let it change shape as the game goes on. Listen, guys. Oh, my gosh. Guys, listen to this. You ready for this, Christian? You ready for this? When I had my players the final part of the whole year-long campaign, they were going to go back in time. And what I was going to have them do is there's going to be two jail cells or two walls lined with jail cells of different characters they interacted with. And they can choose one side to uh, undo all the mistakes they made with one side. And so that the world would look one of two ways and it'd be really cool. And they could, No, Caleb, stop it. Caleb, stop it, Caleb. Listen, haven't you played Mass Effect 3? Nobody likes an ending, which is an A, B, or C choice. Nobody. Ever. History of mankind playing video games. Uh-uh. Stop it. And so I had to change that. I'm like, don't make that mistake, Caleb. And I changed it completely different. Actually, I think I changed it with they didn't really have a choice. I just told them what happened based on the things I knew they wanted to have different. And based on each player got like their own little, like at the end of the TV show, Billy's now a full-time basketball player and has made the major leagues. <laughs> I think major leagues is baseball, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but the ending, so I let them change shape, but I've got them planned. That's like the one real exception to my rule here. They don't get a whole lot of micro control over exactly how the ending's going to go. But it's completely up to what I know they want to have happen. I don't do it like, I'm going to screw them right over. I know they're going to hate this ending. <laughs> Ring hands together evilly. No, 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 no. I love my players and I want to make something they're going to enjoy. We'll talk about in our next episode. Ending anything is incredibly difficult, and I just do my best to make my players enjoy it. This is a difficult thing to try and, like, generalize because this philosophy can change depending on the type of story you want to tell. You know, if you're playing a non-linear, linear, or open-world game, mm -hmm. how you go about player choice is actually really, really different. Um, I think what might be true across all of them is that you don't, as a DM, you don't think of every single branching decision the PCs could possibly Definitely. make before they ever reach a scenario. You think of a scenario and not the solutions to the scenario. It is the PC's jobs to find the solution, not your job as the DM. I agree. You, you put it in the world and you put it in such a way that makes sense and that, you know, a solution is possible to find, but don't sit there and be like, all right, so they're probably going to do this and then they're probably going to do this or they can do this. You, you you deal with that when it comes, and you let them figure it out. I learned that lesson with you. I think I talked about it before in one of our previous episodes when I designed that clay golem room encounter, and I was making that wall. I'm like, oh, i got to make sure it hits the ceiling. You're like, no, Caleb, leave it where it is. If they think about jumping over it, props to them. You can't think of every solution, and if and you fall into a trap if you start thinking of solutions. When your players think of another solution, you're almost like, no, no, it's not the way it's supposed to go. Because I had planned that you were going to do this solution because that was going to make this thing happen with this NPC. No, no, everything's messed up. Bro, 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 back off. You're going to fall into that trap. Mm -hmm. Listen to Christian, guys. Guys, listen to Christian. <laughs> you're talking about playing different games. Right now, I'm playing a open world game where we have complete control of the story. He just kind of gave us some rules about the world, some politics about it, and we got to do it. Right now, we just got an airship because we said, you know what? 
We want the airship. The first couple sessions, it was like this big thing in the sky that we were running away from. And then at one point, I just said, hey, guys, why don't we just keep the airship? That That's ours now, right? And they're like, yeah, that's ours now. And then we spent like a session or two finding it and getting to it. And now it's ours. The GM was like, open world. You want it to happen? Now it's happening. He didn't plan for that to happen. And it just did. It's completely different than the way I run things because my things are all very story driven. So th- it's hard to give out, like you're saying, it's hard to give out these generalizations when there's different things like the different way to do homebrew and whether or not you have a book in your hand and you got to follow a pre-made. Let's talk about the illusion of choice that I kind of introduced this with. This is the big thing. I'm talking about giving them control micro. What about times I pretend to give them control? I would say that the illusion of choice is a bad thing if I had not found it working out so much in my personal games. It's amazing. That's another... (laughs) I think it's an amazing, amazing tool. Micro, in the micro scale where I give my players control, I generally, generally give them real choice. Again, it's kind of case-by-case basis, but almost always they have a real choice about what they're going to do. I find that here, if you do the illusion of choice, this is where you start forcing them to go down paths and maybe they're not interested. This is the whole probing for what they want to do and let them follow that, that thing. But macro, not much. But my players often think, even to this day, that they had the real choice. And I'm not sure if I want to tell them the truth. I'm a big truth guy, but I feel like maybe I should just leave that kind of conspicuous like yes yes david you always did survive i never fudged any dice because you were the linchpin of the story i mean if it's what they believe and they're enjoying it i think that's the really important part i mean it's not like a book or a movie where what is going to happen is set in stone Mm -hmm. christian why don't you tell me i've said this a couple times now illusion of choice what is illusion of choice i could explain it i'm just going to give a really short example which will hopefully illustrate it better than i could you know try to explain it i was doing a game and my players came to a river and i was like okay Right, do you guys go upriver or do you guys go downriver to find what you're looking for? And they were like, hmm, let's think, um, we're going to go upriver. I was like, okay, you guys go upriver and you chose the correct path. The, the There's a log fallen down and you guys can cross the river here. But what they didn't know is that regardless of which way they chose, the they were going to find that same log. Yes. Now, what's important about illusion of choice is in a game is that, you know, now you have that other decision that they never made. They might go back and make that other decision, yes. in which case you're going to have to make something up. Yes. But the illusion of choice is like you present them with options, but in actuality, regardless of the option they choose, it's going to be the same thing. I think we talked about an example the book gave of they are going to hear about Goblin's attack in the city. And if they don't hear it from the barkeeper, they're going to hear it from the hobo. If they don't hear from that, they're going to see on the boards when they go to look for a job on the job boards. One of those ways, whatever way they're interested in, in, in pursuing, you're going to tell them about the goblins. So to define it, illusion of choice is giving your players... The idea that they had control over something they actually never had control over. And, like, when saying it like that, it sounds like such a crappy thing to do to it someone. It does, absolutely. But I'm telling you, from as a PC and as as a player and as a GM, nine, 99 out of 100 times they don't know mm-hmm. that that's the case. And I've had, like, inclinations of that as a player, but I don't pursue it because I don't care. Now we're doing a cool thing. The whole point was to make the game better for everybody. So how do you plan for things like this? For real choices, real, real choices. I mean, it's easy to plan for illusion of choice, but for a real choice, uh, I come up with like enough planning for one session, depending on what I think they're going to pursue. I know my players. I know what's been out on the table last session, the things that they might pursue. You know, save the one in a million times when they just say, you know what, we're dropping everything. We're going to do something else completely different. Kyle Ferguson talked about all this planning he did, and the player said, you know what, let's just steal a boat and get out of here. 
And that's what they did, and it became a pirate campaign. And that was like he threw away his binder full of stuff. Uh, aside from that, the rare time that happens, in my experience, it's rare. I know the few things that my players were interested in, and I plan a session's worth of material for each of those branches. So let's say there's three branches, three branches worth of material. And then when my players pick one, I don't have to worry about planning anymore for those other two branches. Now I'm planning for how they're going to follow that branch and any other branches that might occur in the next session. So I'm always like one session ahead. And this is again for the micro story. For the macro story, I know they're going to kill the four gods. I don't need to plan that each session. That's just going to happen. I tend to try to avoid that by having them make any important decisions before we end our one session. That's definitely a pro tip. Listen, guys, we're pros. Let's give you a tip. Pro tip. Listen to Christian pro tip. Get those decisions at the end of the end of a session. There's a lot of ways to employ illusion of choice. Uh, like there's a series of doors, and maybe maybe they're trotting through a dungeon, and you know they don't know what the dungeon looks like behind the scenes. They don't know what's behind the fog of war of the dungeon. You're you're kind of tired of them trotting through this dungeon. They're taking too long. They open the door, and oh look, it's the destination. In actuality, it was eight hallways down and on the left, but you just moved it over there right. because you want them to reach it. The magically teleporting room. <laughs> And they won't know the difference. Is it, mm-hmm. is it really that different? It's like a philosophical argument. I feel like I need to go to get a degree to really talk <laughs> right, about right, this. Right. Like we're the we're the man and the machine, and <laughs> actually we're the machine because we're the DM. It's a, a whole thing. I, I got a question for you. This is my most guilty sin, my biggest GMing sin. Sort of spoiler alert for Trailblazers. I will absolutely keep a PC alive if he is the linchpin of the story. This happened to a player whose name was David in my year-long campaign, and this is part of my player whose name happens to also be David in Trailblazers. He's such a crucial part of the story, I don't try to, um, I try to keep him alive as much as I can. If he does something really stupid and it's just like, just is dead set on dying, I'm gonna let it happen, but I really try to keep him alive, and I kind of feel guilty about that. Always makes really cool stories. But I feel bad about that. I feel like I'm almost being unfair to the rest of my players. Have you ever done this? Oh, definitely. I, I think we have talked about something similar like this before. If a pl- if a player puts forward a lot of effort with their character and, you know, submits you a lot of backstory and a lot of information on their character and they are integrated into the world, it's just harder to kill them in general. Whereas if there's a character that's, you know, there's kind of their dead parents. What we call really... the lump. No. <laughs> not really much of a backstory they're, they're, you know their parents are dead and they're just running around collecting treasure you don't feel bad when they get crit because you know they probably don't even mind rolling up a new character they... Christian where might I find out the definition of different kinds of player uh, player types our 202 episode player types in conflict we talk oh. about a, di- a lot of different player types and I think we had this a conversation about this in that uh, episode also in our 100 series uh character creation i think that was 110 or something around there we talk about it and even our actually funny enough our 5000 celebration episode we talked about a lot of stuff on that episode you guys should just listen to the episode it's a good episode but when we're talking about this in terms of player choice um i think it's really the same um the choices they make still matter if the really important person makes a really dumb choice they're going to die there's nothing i can do to stop it and i won't stop it because like i said before it's really important to kill people when they do something stupid mm-hmm. And, the, and and that's we talk about that in character death and the story's going to conform around it and probably be cooler for it because you'll you'll start you'll have to create some interesting things now to twist it and to make it interesting it'll, it'll go in a different direction but it's not always a bad direction but i'm beginning to think maybe i just like keeping people whose real name is david alive <laughs> 
it's like a it's like a motif of your campaign. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Season th- uh, two of Trailblazers, I was planning on having uh, completely different players. Not having maybe I'm, son of David. Maybe I need to pick somebody whose name is David. That way, I can keep him alive. You want to hear something really weird? I like to GM story driven. Can I say no? You can, but I'm going to tell you anyway because this is an audio podcast and there's a bunch of people listen to it. And they might they might say yes. No, what what if no one said yes? If no one said yes, if if everyone emails me and says no, every single listener, I'll check the listener number on the episode. And if I get that many emails, next time I ask if you want to hear something and you say no, I won't say it. Okay, Christian. Is it is it is it about cat folk? <laughs> I gotta ask, it's about cat folk and saunas. It is not about cat folk saunas or people named David. Okay. <laughs> I like to, and exclusively GM story-driven, but I like to play freeform, like the sandbox open world. When we were doing, you probably noticed this, when we were playing in the, the one campaign that uh, I played under you as a GM, the harrowing, I was constantly trying to do things as if it was like an open world and there was no like focus story. This is the next thing to do. I, I farted off with all with an NPC all about a, sort, a certain thing that was, I'm sure, nowhere in the book about how to handle the situation. I, I don't think it's that weird. It's It just feels very different when you're playing as opposed to when you're DMing. I just mm-hmm. find them two really, really separate things when it comes to my mindset going into it. You're right. Christian, we've agreed on too many things this episode. I promise people will fight. Before this episode ends, I need you to promise me you're going to fight to me about something. Okay, fine. Fine. I I promise. So while we're talking about philosophies on player choice, one philosophy I have related to this is that when your players make these choices in their worlds, what's really important is to show that that choice mattered. You have to reflect it in either the citizens of the world or the things they see and encounter and the things people say. You have to reflect that at some point that choice affected somebody's life. It affected something. Absolutely. I heartily agree with you. You can't just have them make the choice to be like, okay, on to the next branch of the story. The only effect that had was you're going this way instead of that way. You got to show like people will react to them making different selections, different choices. My whole world has changed constantly because of my players' actions. They literally put a new person in power that if they didn't do it, wouldn't have come to power. Things were completely different. And it has like something like that had far reaching, uh, results because there's a new person in power all sorts of different things changed it was vast reaching right now in trailblazers spoiler for current chapter of trailblazers my players are in charge of a whole nation and they're changing everything about that nation and the way they relate to the rest of the world and it's so important for me when i talk about like the micro changes and i said that in sometimes my macro would change based on players actions that is almost a must it is that direct result of look you're in this living world and you're such a real and important part of it it's one of the biggest rewards in my opinion you can give a player when we talked about how to reward your players i don't know if we really mentioned this but heck with magic items if you can change the world that's a certain satisfaction i get out of being a player exactly Uh, to give my example of it i had a pc in my rise of the rune lords campaign named ruben he was the only human of the group, and he was kind of like a really basic guy. He was from, like, a backwater kind of town, basic human upbringing. And he was one of the adventurers in the party, and they ended up becoming pretty well-known because of what they did. And he had this kind of ongoing gag where he's like, I want to start the Order of Reuben. And we, we'd all have a good laugh. He'd be like, yeah, hey, you want to join the Order of Reuben? And they're like, what are you talking about? Who are you? I don't know who you are. <laughs> he's like, yeah, no, destroy my order. And people are like, no. So they eventually, like, go back to the city that they're from. They end up, go like, wrapping around there as part of the story. And, like, someone goes up to him and he's like, they're like, yeah, I want to join the Order of Reuben. I hear about it. Like, can I join it? And 
Ruben's like, mm, uh, yeah. No. And he's kind of, he's still treated it like a joke. He was like, yeah, uh, go get me some coffee. And they're like, but no, really, do you have, like, you know, codes? Or, like, do we have a whole guild hall? Like, what do we do? And the character kept joking about it when people tried to be serious with him about it. And that really changed people's perception of the character. Hmm. And he eventually had to start trying to change his ideas on how that was going to happen. I wasn't ready for actual rewards and niceness from my GM. What does that say about <laughs> your GMing style, Christian? You cruel, never giving your players rewards? I see how it is. It actually ties in with another philosophy I have, which ties closely to player choice. And that's your PCs are going to want something out of the campaign. And they're going to make choices to try to achieve that something. And one of my big philosophies is give the players but the give the players what they want, but not in the manner that they expect it. Hmm. Like Ruben wanted the Order of Ruben. And he wanted to be this laughy, jokey kind of thing. I gave him the Order of Ruben, but it was something more rooted in the real world. Like they were like, make us a set of tenants and we'll join. Right. And he had to change his perception of what that was to make it fit into the world. And you're not doing that well, to to be mean. You're doing that to give them a sense of satisfaction they might not have otherwise had. Right. Like, for another character in that campaign was like, I want a shotgun. I want a shotgun. They kept saying, they were gunslinger. They're like, I want a shotgun. Right. And, like, I'm not going to just be like, okay, you guys defeat this random ogre. And in his little horde of loot, you find a <laughs> shotgun. A double barrel like, shotgun. Oh, well, I got the shotgun I wanted. Like, that's not satisfying at all to not have to work for what you get. Right. What I ended up doing with that the, that character was they had to they, they ended up in a really big library and the library had like ancient knowledge and they found a book that had like clockwork mechanics in it that she could study and read and then eventually ended up making her own weapon more akin to a shotgun. I didn't just you know come down from the heavens and say here's your loot a sweet shotgun. It was right. something the character had to develop in order to get. They had to research it. They had to figure out new things about themselves and use their skills to achieve it. My player, David, that's in Trailblazers, uh, loves dogs in real life and wanted a dog in the game. He didn't get it until session 20-something in the higher ends of 20s. It's just, you know, you, and then when he got it, it was a really cool, awesome, fantastic otherworldly dog, and it was a big reward, and it was super awesome. Way more satisfying than, yes, you find a stray dog and it likes you. It's na- It has a collar, and it's the name is exactly what right. you were going to name it. <laughs> And again, we're talking about story-driven stuff. When I'm doing open world, like I'm doing an open world game right now, matter of fact, it's tonight. Uh, they say um, when we want something, he does everything he can to give us just what we want. We want an airship, we got it in two sessions. It's just a different kind of game. We're, I think you and I are both really fond of story-driven, um, especially because I think, uh, you can correct me if you're if I'm wrong, pre-mades are rather story-driven. Yes. I mean, it's not like you just got it. Like, we want an airship. It was like, okay, the airship parked right next to you. When they toss the keys down, they say, don't scratch the paint. Right. Like, you said you had to go find it, and you probably had to, like, register it, and someone had to learn to fly it. Oh, the DMV was just, it took, like, nine sessions just to get through the line <laughs> in DMV. Let's talk about playing to your PC strengths and weaknesses. This is something that if you don't do, you'll find very quickly your player's not having so much fun. I think it's a mistake you can make as an early GM. And the longer I became a GM, the more I learned to do this. Don't screw over your players just because, haha, it's fun, GM versus uh, players. Which, again, there's there's people out there who do like that. I think a lot of original D&D players might like that. But certainly I think it's kind of moved away that there's some better or um, different enjoyment that a lot of people like where you don't do that. Uh, let me give you an example of me playing through one of my PC strength. My player, Hanzo, played by David, was a ninja. And he eventually learned the ninja trick where he could go through a wall. I think it was like 10 feet worth of wall or something. And so when I made that maze I talked about last episode, what's that tying the episodes together? Hey-oh. 
one of the cool things about putting that maze in at just that point was he had just leveled up like a session or two before and he just got that ability. So I put somewhere he could actually take advantage of it. They were trying to figure out this maze and he didn't have to be stuck by the maze. He could be like, well, I'm going to walk through this wall. I purposely made the walls a force only like five feet uh, or smaller. So he could just walk through it and not have to worry about it. And then, of course, he has to play through you know, strategy. He's not going to walk through the whole maze, or at least if he's not an idiot, and just separate himself from the party. But he was able to use it to, like, you know, flank people and get around the maze easier. I was giving him an opportunity to use his new ability, which I could tell as soon as he got it, he was trying to find ways because he was doing it for the most mundane of things, going through walls just to say hi to people, just because he was really excited about this ability. So I gave him a chance to use it really meaningfully in the story. And designing encounters just for your players to excel at. You don't want to design them to fail. You want to design it for your players to excel at. Don't be afraid of... The, we talked about this earlier. Don't be afraid of them outthinking you. Encourage that. Let Be so happy when they come up with the solution to the problems you're putting in front of them. That's close to a philosophy I have in that, you know, occasionally things should be easy. Not every fight has to be a fight for your life where everyone almost dies. Not every puzzle has to be this mind-bending puzzle where you have to go back and put things together and talk to another NPC. So The PCs are good at a lot of things, and a lot of stuff should come easily to them, and you should design some things with that in mind. What about weaknesses? Weaknesses, you know, a lot of characters have them built in. Sometimes they are part of a character's class. Weaknesses should be used, but it's really easy to put something in and be like, okay, so we have a fighter with this low will save. Everything's going to just chuck will saves at him. Ha 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 ha. They don't really have a way to overcome that, and that's not really fair to the player. I think weaknesses should be used. They should be exposed. They should be prodded at, but they should not be used to, like, invalidate a character. Definitely. We talked about in our extra credit episode of character creation with guest Andrew from Tales from the Lich, formerly Softly Speaking Sanskrit, how building weaknesses into your player makes things, sorry, into your character. Listen, I've got enough weaknesses. Let's not build any, let's not built in any more weaknesses for me, okay? All right, my wife might leave me. I don't need that right now. Building in weaknesses to your character makes them more interesting. Why is Superman such a difficult person to write stories for? Because he doesn't have a weakness. So they had to come up with, okay, there's kryptonite. You have to have something. Batman, the re- one of the story reasons for meta reasons he doesn't kill people is because it gives him a real weakness. If he killed people, it would just be like Batman would be like, okay, Joker's gotten him or Joker. All his villains die. Real simple. And then Batman's not as interesting a character. One of the most interesting things about Batman is his weakness, uh, what could be considered uh, some of his weaknesses. If a player has a weakness, then they can be rewarded for working together to overcome the weaknesses in the party. And you can punish them if they don't. So if, a, if they're not aware of a weakness, don't like just outright destroy them and wipe the floor with them. But after they are aware of it, then it's free game. I had my players lose a battle. Uh, the second it was the second to last battle in the tournament I talked about in our last ep- uh, in um, making good encounters and my players fine uh, they got to the second to last battle and they and they got defeated just because they didn't work together well enough everybody was doing their own thing and they ended up getting they ended up losing and so when they did their next encounter my players were working together beautifully it was good they were doing it too because they were fighting a red dragon. And he was melting everything. The floor was lava. Literally, they were not playing a game. They were not hopping from chair to chair. They were hopping from solid ground to solid ground with liquid death right below them. Like in the movie Volcano with uh, Tommy Lee Jones where the guy, he steps into like two inches of lava and somehow completely melts. Go figure that one out. You ever seen that? No. The guy, he's like he's like saving like a little girl or something and he jumps into lava and throws her to safety. But then he like melts in like an inch of lava. Completely. <laughs> all Every part of him. All gone. Just the lava got that much thicker. That's it. 
It's gone. Whatever. Okay, fine. Volcano movie. It was his weakness. <laughs> but when my players at that with the dragon battle, that was like a rough battle where I didn't fudge any dice. I don't. I don't remember fudging any dice, and it was just a tough battle. But my players beat the guy because they worked together. He was a one-eyed dragon, so one of the players was working out like, you shoot out his eye, then he can't see me, so I I can get my sneak attack on him, or, or something like that. I don't remember exactly what they were doing, but they were working together. If they had, again, not worked together, I was super cool letting the red dragon just rinse them. But if your players don't have weaknesses, you don't get the satisfaction of, hey, we overcame this thing. We don't have a healer, but somehow we overcame that. We're all we're all martial characters. No one here is a, a caster, yet somehow we are excelling in this game because we know how to, to work around it. I like what you say when you say work together to cover weaknesses because a weakness is typically only a weakness of one of the party members. It might be a strength of another party member, and if the party helps you know, someone overcome their weakness, that's just that much more meaningful, that much more role-play. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that fighter with the bad will save, to- go toss a resistance on him or a heroism. Right. You, know, you fix that problem. Someone else helped him with that problem. And for some reason, the answer is always casting a spell <laughs> in this high fantasy system. And it doesn't have to be. Wow, let me harken back to a real old episode we did, Skills. We talked about do your best not to overlap every skill. If somebody doesn't have a knowledge nature, then one of you should have it and don't have everybody have it. The one guy picks knowledge nature and then that guy's bad at stealthing, so somebody else gets good stealth. And that kind of comes together with just having a diverse um, party composition. Party composition? Where can we learn more about party compositions, Professor Christian? Our 106 episode, uh, Party Rolls, we talk about different roles of the party and party composition, things like that. Christian, is tank and healer roles? <laughs> uh, do, do I rant now? Not, not unless we're playing WoW, right? <laughs> right. All right, Christian, we're still agreeing with each other. We still we got, we got a couple more sections up. Let's see what happens. It doesn't even have to be like a red dragon that your party members have like discovered they're weak against mm-hmm. and then have to overcome their weaknesses like together. It could be something as simple as like they encounter a car- uh, enemy with flying. Yeah. And just like the fighter, di- the fighter didn't pack a bow. The the rogue didn't pack a bow or a crossbow. And you just sit there and wait for the sorcerer to magic missile the thing to death. If they encounter something along the way after that, like a way after that, that has flying, and they still haven't bought a bow, or they still haven't bought a crossbow, or they still haven't picked up a sling, which is literally free, does not have a gold value associated <laughs> with the sling, and you can throw rocks then you murder him with the flying thing. You have to be able to overcome your weaknesses, if able to. You said it doesn't have to be Red Dragon. Red Dragons can fly, that's all I'm saying. I, n- I know, but I'm just saying, like, a pixie shows up, it's like, ha 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 ha, I'm just gonna dazzle you all day, and they're like, stop dazzling 500 us. tooth fairies, guess what? Everybody is going to need new teeth. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to today's game show. Last we left off, you had control of the board, David. Go ahead and pick a category. I'll take weak spots for 600, Caleb. I already told you that isn't the category. In that case, I'll take things that don't fit in castles for 400. All right, for $400, here's the answer. This massive thing won't fit into a castle. Dom, what is a dragon? That is correct. All right, we surveyed 100 people. Top five answers are on the board. We come across an obviously important character who I've spent hours preparing as a critical pivot point to the story. What do you do? Yes, David. I shoot him in the face. That is correct. And that means you have reached the million dollar question. Here we go. David, for a million dollars. This podcast is an entertaining podcast where a couple of friends get together, hang out, and play the tabletop RPG Pathfinder together. Is it A, the Trailblazers actual play podcast? 
B. Pathfinder Academy, an informative podcast about the same game. C. The Trailblazer Network on iTunes, where you can find both of these shows and more. Or D. More information on our website at tblazer.net. I don't know. That's a tough one. I'd like to phone a friend. All right, let's get Dom on the line. Dom, I'm stuck here. Can you help me out? I sure can. The answer's A, the Trailblazers podcast. Is that your final answer? Yes, A, the Trailblazers podcast. That's correct! And everyone's a winner because everyone can listen to the Trailblazers podcast every Tuesday right here on the Trailblazer Network. Because the only thing nerdier than playing RPGs is listening to shows about people playing RPGs. Let's talk about combat. Combat's a big one for me, and it's probably where a lot of people differ in their philosophies, I want to say. So maybe this is where we'll get our contention from. My number one philosophy when it comes to combat is that enemies, in order to be memorable, in order to be strong, they need to cheat. And I don't mean cheat as in they cheat on their dice. They need to have things like immunities. They need to have things like spells that are incredibly powerful. And sometimes they just have to defy some rules because that is all enemies are. If you had a campaign that was just a bunch of like humans fighting each other with class levels, it would be the most boring, uninteresting campaign you could possibly run. I mean, look at all the different... That's the whole reason there's entire archetypes of enemies. That's why elementals are immune to sneak attacks. That's why dragons are immune to sleep effects. It's why everything has different immunities because... Every enemy has to change some sort of rule because that's just how it is. That's the only thing that makes them challenging. What do you say to that, Caleb? Cheating enemies. I think that the way enemies are designed is that they can be specific. Something players can't do. It's like when you play Final Fantasy or any sort of, you know, JRPG. And you finally, once you get uh, transformed into a frog, and you're like, oh! That's like the most amazing power ever. He just transformed me into a fraud. I can't do anything. That player's completely useless. That character's completely useless now. I can't wait till I learn that ability. And when you get really high in level, you learn it. And then guess what? You never use it. Why? Because, well, you have... Why, I could just kill them. Why don't I just kill them before I do it? Like, it just makes so much more sense to me. But it was a real big hard thing to fight against because... It was, that was all that one thing did was turn you into a frog. And that's all I had to do because it didn't matter if it died. If it, it, it's, 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 it's a machine that just turns you into a frog and maybe you'll, you'll probably fight it again if you walk around in the same area. It doesn't matter. It's not part of the story. It's not a big NPC. It's not a big boss. It can just go. It doesn't matter. So a lot of beasts in the beast area are like that. Like the basilisk, it does one thing really cool. It will turn people to stone and that's the big thing you gotta deal about it. It doesn't matter that it doesn't have a lot of things to keep itself alive. If it turns one player to stone and dies, that's good enough. It just did a great job. So I think the enemies already kind of cheat in the beast cherry already. They already have specific, interesting, cool things that they can do just by nature of they're not a player. They can be the one trick ponies that we don't ever want players to be. So I don't have to really cheat with my my beast aside from the fudging we were talking about earlier, except, of course, you know, I guess I'm being a hypocrite with, like, every boss I have is something that's not in a bestiary. I completely make up rules for each boss. <laughs> but I'm just using that as an example. Like, when you make your own creatures, um, stuff in the bestiary already cheats in some capacity. But when you make your own enemies for your players to fight, like, you might write down an ability and be like, hmm, is that cheating? Am I allowed to do that? And the answer is yes, you are allowed to do that. That I agree with you completely. As long as long as you're not just trying to kill them. Right. And this goes hand in hand with another philosophy I have in that enemies should not fight 
at 100% optimal tactical precision. Enemies make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Have your, your your players are fighting a bunch of, like, roguish-type characters. Maybe one of them makes a bull rush attempt, even though they don't have improved bull rush. It wasn't the optimal play for them to do. They could have just stabbed mm-hmm. them and got sneak attack damage, but it's more interesting. Or maybe they were just angry and flustered and pushed the player or tried to knock them over. Can I tell you how important this is? When you're running a higher level campaign, which I often run, the bestiary has the the higher CR beasts. CR is challenge rating. You can learn about that in making good encounters. The high CR beasts are redonkulous, sir. And mm-hmm. you've got to. The, it's almost like what Pies was doing. He's like, here is a tool chest of all a bunch of interesting things they can do. Pick the ones that you think will be the most interesting in the in that encounter. If you do all of them, you're gonna make. You're gonna have. A bad time at least your players are and you know you said don't always there are times to fight 100 optimally right boss fight or something like that i think is, is often for me anyway a big time for that uh or but, a particularly intelligent enemy yeah just someone who is brought up to be that way right and then yeah it makes a good point really dumb creatures might make really dumb mistakes or if you're fighting an animal it'll make decisions an animal would make oh you just hit me i'm going to turn my attention to the guy who i've been hitting all encounter who's almost dead and i could kill him right now but somebody just hit me and now it's a big threat an animal will make that dumb mistake have them walk by people in their threatened squares and invoke attack as opportunity have them try combat maneuvers mm-hmm. that they're not properly trained in have them try a different weapon try a different spell things like that and like you said with the um high cr stuff later on rise of the rune lords i really had to dumb down some of the fight not dumb them down but just like not have them fight optimally because when you get to all level 15 wizards as being the enemies it's like hmm why doesn't the wizard just cast prismatic spray as his first spell of the round every single fight because it wipes the party (laughs) well because that's that's not fun at all at the end of each encounter you should make you should just create all these rules so that you can de-optimize the encounter you're like this encounter is de-optimized (laughs) <laughs> My players, uh, they've overcome their weaknesses. They are now optimized. The the one time I ever used Prismatic Spray in Rise of the Rune Lords, immediately after that, I was like, never again. <laughs> Do you know what the spell I does, don't. Caleb? Please let me know, Christian. It's a it's a really gigantic Conan spell that offers a will save, but it's really, really high. And they get hit by a random color. And you look at some of the random colors, you're like, okay, that's not so bad. They have to, they take, like... 40 fire damage they take like 80 acid damage you look at those two and you're like hmm, okay so that's not that bad and then the rest are just like one shot <laughs> petrified turned to stone Ooh. transported to a random dimension poisoned oh with uh poisoned and then it's like 1d2 con damage like ever or like 2d2 con damage every round or something like that Yikes. and then the last ones roll twice on this table and take both results wow i I had four or five, I think I had five players in the party at the time, and the one time I ever used it, I rolled, like, all the worst abilities in four of them, and I was like, mm, never using this again, and I'm definitely not going through with this was attack. That, would that be a time so you stupid. consider fudging and changing what the result was? I 100% fudged that. <laughs> if I went with, it was the first spell that that wizard cast, and if I went with it, the rogue would have been poisoned and died in three rounds. The gunslinger would have been petrified and turned to stone. The sorcerer would have been both poisoned and then transported to another dimension. Perfect. Uh, the fighter would have taken about a hundred and something damage. And then the one guy was unscathed. Now, there are cool times. Uh, you know, we've, we've now come up with cool illustrations for a previous topic, but we'll let's roll with it. 
I have uh, once done that where uh, they were found like an angel or something that had greater teleportation or something like that. I had a ranger and, he, and she had a wolf animal companion, right? And the wolf had gotten past whatever level that it just like jumps nine levels to be the same as it would be if it was a druid companion. So it was it was a force to be reckoned with. And so the angel grabbed it and was like, okay, uh, see ya. And boom, teleported to a different plane and then came back without him. And they were like, uh, 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 oh no, let's not have that happen to us. I scared my players, but what they didn't know is I was never, ever, ever going to teleport any of them. But they thought I was. Now they saw, oh, they can do that. Let's not have that happen to us. And my players probably thought, wow, we really planned that well, not getting close to the angel so we didn't get teleported. And they they seem like they, they get rewarded for working together, but in the end, they never were going to. And then you know, I, I made up something like as soon as the angel died, the wolf got re-teleported back to them. You mean you gave them a, an illusion of a choice? I did. The illusion of, of reward. <laughs> When it comes to combat, I try to do something. My my big philosophy is each combat should give them something new or different that they haven't done before. And that would be more interesting, whether it's using a beat set, using something that they've never used before, or maybe like my players I've talked about before, they're scared of clockwork, very scared of clockwork. But when they got to a level that was high enough to fight clockwork and win, I did a clockwork encounter. And it was almost a story reward. They just felt happy that they were able to beat Clockwork. They're like, yeah, we're badass. We just killed Clockwork like they were nothing. Like they were little kittens. Take that, Clockwork Mage. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, you definitely want to mix it up. Like if you're in a branch of a campaign where you're fighting a bunch of goblins, you don't want to literally have every fight be like, okay, there's four goblins. Okay, there's three goblins. One of them's wearing robes. Okay, this time there's five goblins, guys. Get ready for this one. You got to mix it up. Throw in different creatures in there. Like, they're going to get so bored fighting only goblins or fighting only gnolls or fighting only skeletons. All right, no one gets tired of fighting skeletons. No one gets tired of fighting gnolls. Are you kidding me? Gnolls are the best. (laughs) Where are gnolls? Heyo. But, you know, and throw in the different kinds of encounters that we talked about and making good encounters a couple episodes ago where we had, like, the objective-based encounter or the kill-all-monsters-based encounter or the waves of enemy encounter. Change that up as well. And we even talked about in the episode sometimes when it was good to bring the same kind of encounter way later when your players have a whole new tool set to deal with it. Because it's like a whole new encounter, essentially, because they have so many new options right. to take. And, and personally, when I revisit encounters, I changed them up in a certain way. Uh, the big way was they went with the final boss was with part of each encounter. But when it comes to players in combat, I am... A yes man. I try to be it so hard. If my players say they want something or they want to do something, I try to find an excuse to say yes. I know this extends to more than just combat as well, but I'm talking about just for combat. If my player wants to epically kick him off the cliff and he's like maybe five feet too far away, I might be like, that's so cool. I'll let you roll the CMB anyway. I And that's just a small example. I constantly am trying to find a reason to say yes and let my players be epic. Don't overdo this. If it's not feasible, then sorry, but no, I'm sorry you can't leap over the skyscraper, get over to the guy, and then kick him into a pit that would teleport him to hell. I'm sorry. That sounds real neat, but you have heavy armor on and your move speed's 10 feet. That is very close to one of my my last philosophy for combat, and that is, especially in Pathfinder, learn to be fluid with the combat rules. I find Pathfinder's combat rules to be very, very stringent, Mm -hmm. and they don't facilitate good role-playing in combat. It's you don't want it to boil down to five foot step full round attack. Right. Five foot step full round attack. That's why I say make those enemies that cheat and do different things and encourage your players to do different things by saying yes when they want to try something different. If the wizard wants to wants yes. to cast reduce person and then you know your your 
Berserker, not Berserker, your Barbarian wants to go and step on him like Duke Nukem style. I don't think it's technically in the rules, but you know what? If the thing was low on health anyway, yeah, go ahead. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Smear him like a bug. I love it. Oh, why do we still agree? I hate agreeing I with you so all right, much. All right, we got another section. Let's talk about leveling up. We, we're sure to disagree here. I level my players up after they have achieved something great and after they have shown complete understanding of their current abilities. I don't do XP. So, for example, in that campaign where my players were killing gods, you better believe every time they killed a god, they leveled up. Every time, without fail. And if my players, like, have been playing a long time, no, like, super big encounters, something has happened, but they've really gone through a couple encounters, and they show they know their abilities up, down, left, right, forward, and center. Up, down, left, right, hold, they start. There's a Sonic cheat code for all you little kids out there still playing Sonic on the Genesis. Um, <laughs> I give my players a level up so they can have new things to play with. I don't want the game to get stagnant for them. The story may be so cool, but, you know, if the guy's like, you know, I I can walk through walls, and I've been doing that for nine sessions, I'd like a new ninja trick. You know what? Time to level them up. I'm sure I won't just do it like you guys are at the bar and you level up. I'll have something, even if it's small, happen. I, I, several times I've leveled up somebody after a story moment, not after a, a combat. And do you always keep all the party on the same level? Boy, yes, I do. I did it in the past. Yep. And it freaking kicked me in the butt. Right, because someone's going to come up and be like, hang on, what level are we? I've been... I didn't update my character sheet. I think I've admitted this it's, before. It's been 10 sessions and I haven't updated my character sheet. What level am I? I think I've admitted this before. And shame, I'll do it again. As a reward for my player giving me a backstory, I leveled him up. So he was one level higher than everybody else. I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry. Now, unfortunately, we mostly agree with this. Um, I feel mostly the same way. Unfortunately, I Caleb, really like... I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really like XP. I don't really use it. I level it up same as you after something important happens in the story or after I feel that they all have used enough their abilities enough have a good uh, grasp of understanding of their abilities but I also find that this is something dependent on the story to give an example I am running a low fantasy campaign soon and this is a campaign where you know you're supposed to feel like regular people for the most part you're not supposed to be these superhuman high fantasy people that can you know clear 50 feet horizontal jumps without a running start and do a triple backflip summon Cthulhu at your will oh I don't have the black tentacle spell i have cthulhu spell (laughs) so and sometimes i feel like the party's relative strength is really important to the story so i might just hold them at a level for an extended period of time because i feel like that's what fits the story and i'll keep it like that unless my players express like the notion that they do want to level up then i'll start to consider Mm -hmm. it uh i used to do xp for the beginning maybe the first half first quarter Probably the first half of, you know, that year-long campaign, I did XP. And I'm not against doing XP. I just simply think the way that, you know, you and I talked about doing it is better. If you're going to use XP, there certainly is some cool rewards to that. There's, It's a really satisfying feel. I'm like, yes, 3,000 XP. I'm only 2,000 away from getting the next level. It can cause some problems. Players might do some silly things just to see if they can't get XP to level up. But I think if you do reward XP, uh, try to reward XP. I'm not sure if this is a rules is written thing, but for more than just defeating a monster in combat. Maybe they get XP if they spared the monster and maybe they didn't have a reason to but just had a kindness and that fit with this character so you know what we'll give xp to the whole party everybody gets to an xp because that was a really cool moment or maybe they got through some big social skill check engagement and they get some xp from that 
That way, the players don't think that the only way to level up and be cool is if I fight something. Listen, guys, cha the chapter we're in right now in Trailblazers, Chapter 4, uh, it, there's, there is less combat than in many of the other things I've done. It's like six sessions of only a few, very few combat encounters. If I was doing XP, they would not be leveling up, and certainly that's something they need to do. And like, especially over six sessions, uh, three-hour-long sessions each, especially I should say, that should level up at least once in there. I feel so. If I could give you some advice, give XP for more than just combat, but don't ever give. I had this problem. I gave just like one person XP because they did something cool, and my other player came to me and said, "I feel a little ripped off because." That's not something my character would do. My character wouldn't spare somebody. And you gave that character XP because he spared somebody. Does that mean I'll never be able to get bonus XP like that? And he was right, and I felt bad about it, and I and I changed my mind, and, and I if you did something really true to your character, then I gave you know that person XP. But you know it's it's since changed to give everybody that XP, and it helps you know it helps your players encourage your other players to do interesting and cool things as well. Mm, I like that. So I don't think it's a broken system. I just think that the way you and I do it, it is kind of cool. And also, especially since I'm such a freaking grasper of my story-driven stuff, I can I like to little have a little more control over when they're going to level up because I know what I'm going to throw at them next. No, you don't hit level five because then you would get the stone-shaped spell and completely destroy this maze. So <laughs> shut your mouth. I try not to be stingy with leveling up. Especially because I think there are cooler and more interesting encounters you can design the higher level the PC is because they get to fight monsters that are more interesting and they have more tools in their chest. And I like to run high level campaigns anyway. And I have never, ever started at one uh, minus my very first time playing D&D. &D. It wasn't even Pathfinder because it was starter edition. You know, we handed out the sheets, made it the characters as the tutorial told us to. And we were all level one. Like aside from that, never again did I start people level one. And we, we definitely love we definitely finish past 10. We're definitely in the teens. And I know it's not something that, that's that's very common. Most people I hear don't do that. And many games I played or tried don't to play. Don't do what exactly? Huh? Don't do what exactly? Do high level. Um, many games okay. I played or started uh, started me at very low level, uh, including level one before. I played Pathfinder level one. I played, what was it, a Gunslinger level one. Not super powerful, by the way. Um, and when he died, I had like a level three Kineticist. Kineticist is so cool, guys. The Blood Kineticist. I <sighs> love it. One day, I can't wait till we get to uh, reviewing that one. Kineticist is like the Arcanist to me. Really, really cool. All right. I got a question for you, Christian. Hang on, man. Yeah. We finally found it. What? I completely disagree with you on this. <gasps> Scandalous. What do you disagree with me? Um, but I do want to say that I, I very much say find a lot of people hold the same uh, opinion that do not play Pathfinder at level one because it's stupid. Mm -hmm. Because damage, the way hit dice and damage dice work, you just randomly get one shot by certain weapons because it's a D12 weapon. Right. And you just don't feel, you don't even feel like a normal person. You're like, what, you mean I can't even like grab this ledge a foot above me? Like, come right, on. Right. Um, but almost everything else, I am diametrically opposed to high level stuff. I really don't like Pathfinder past like level ten. Wow, honestly, really? I wouldn't say I don't like it as much as like. Oh wait, no, I would totally say that I don't like it. Um, <laughs> it's too high fantasy, and and I'm not a high fantasy person. I don't because by the time they hit level twelve, I feel like the only way to challenge the players is to give them global politics, and I like doing smaller scale stuff. I don't want every story to be them saving the world and killing gods. I want sometimes them just be people solving, you know, smaller city problems, inner city problems, right. and teaching those inner city kids. 
Wow, I can't disagree with you anymore. Not only did we like find something that we're like, oh, we can find a way. I really like seriously disagree with you. The level I like, I like in the high level. That's where it gets cool. You can do whatever you want at high level. For example, at Trailblazers right now, it's very political because they own a. Destroy, uh, spoilers, everybody. Give it a second. They own. Oh, is it, is is it politics going across multiple continents? Yes. Okay. What does that mean? Something. I mean, that's what I did, global politics. Yes, yes. They they have control of a nation, and they're having to, like, let's avoid war with the biggest nation on the planet, but all they want is to take us over, and we need to find a way to avoid that. And they want the one guy we can't give them. There's all these big problems, and it's in their past level 10. And then in my other campaign, like I told you, when they were past level 10, they're fighting gods. You can do what your players want to do at whatever level they're at. But the higher level they are... To me, it's so much more fun. The ninja at level... I mean, let's throw one out of the... Because we both agree one is kind of silly. Maybe if not silly, but don't do it a lot. You can't get super interesting things. But at level three and five and six, ninja is just not as epic and cool as a level 12 ninja. When he's walking through walls and he's got greater invisibility, that's just like so cool. And I can design some really interesting encounters. When they were lower levels, there was an encounter that just said, not yet. And I put him away and I said, oh, I'll have to do that encounter some other time because my players just couldn't deal with it right now. And like, there's freaking, they weren't even high enough level for some stuff I wanted to throw at them. Clockwork Alliance are such a cool concept, but they are so high CR. They can one-on-one a dragon, except for like the Greater Worm Dragon or whatever. There's like certain dragons that can't be, but pretty much one-on-one Goliaths can kill a dragon. That'd be so cool. I can't wait for my players to fight this. The Cannon Golem. I'm, I'm, I swear one day I will find a way my players can fight a Cannon Golem, but they're just such high CR. What epic, awesome stuff happens when the players fight a Tarrasque or get to fight Cthulhu or these really high CR creatures without having to do, um, what do they call it, Mythic level, which, by the way, I would like to learn about Mythic. One day we should do like a campaign about it so we can learn about it and do an episode on it. I have so much fun with higher levels. I don't think you're as restrained as you think you are. I'm not saying I'm restrained. I find it interesting that you say encounters can be more interesting at higher level because, I'm, I don't know, maybe you haven't played with people that power game the system. I don't say as much power game as much as play it really optimally, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. where you, you hit a certain level where everything is killable because you have a wizard with a certain spell or you have some, like, yeah, every design, you can do things to make it interesting, but there's always going to be an answer to completely trump whatever you do because, hey, we have a wizard. Why does anything matter? But you, oh. yeah, you made this you made this cool encounter with the walls, but oh no, the wizard just cast stone to flesh, and you know, then he cast flesh to mud, and then now all the, the you know all the walls are gone, and we're just fighting that guy. Oh, there's this cool interdimensional being. Uh, well, the wizard casts you know dimensional ray, and now the interdimensional being stuck in our plane and fighting us like a normal person just got its ass handed to us. I find that with lower levels, the limitations of the classes add a lot in the way that um. A weakness adds a lot to a character. Limitations in combat add a lot to a combat encounter. Whereas I just feel like all those limitations start to go away after level 10. This fits back in what we were saying a a few moments ago about being a yes man. That's super cool if your players found this awesome solution to this interplanar being by making it stay on this plane. Great job. Fantastic. I'm not going to design my encounters, though, to be so easily overcome. The interdimensional playing being is not going to be the only thing there to deal with. Uh, you know how we talked about sometimes we have to play our beasts unoptimally? Sometimes players just incidentally play unoptimally. They don't think about that spell or they didn't prepare it ahead of time. That just happens. There's like a, a whole spell about charming snakes. and It's like super cool, but you're like, I'll never prepare this. I'm going to come against the snake. And then now all of a sudden, you know, they're in a dungeon full of snakes and naga where like, oh, if only I prepared this spell. Uh, oh, well, there's 
all sorts of things, your players will not always come up with the best solution. And when they do, it's super cool. Awesome. And I do not want to say that low level isn't fun or that you can't design interesting encounters at low level. You certainly can. But I think that it would be wrong to categorize higher level things as useless and boring and your players will always just overcome it. You got to remember that there are just beasts that are super crazy and even things that are just like the clockwork where it's like, well, electricity kicks their butt. You can still have a dangerous encounter by adding four more clockwork than you normally would have or something like that. Or again, letting them have that easy encounter once in a while because they won't always have it. They won't always think of the best solution or they might their party might have that gap there where they have to overcome that. We don't have a wizard in our party or we don't have that barbarian with power attack that does 96 damage. Or even when we do, there's like six skeletons and one main guy and the the warrior, the, the barbarian accidentally wastes his big power attack on one of the weak skeletons instead of the main guy. Then the main like when you fight a lich, I don't care what super awesome stuff you have. He has the ability to paralyze you for life. That's a super powerful, cool thing to deal with. And if your players deal with it, you want your players to deal with it because you don't want them to have the negative consequences. If my player doesn't figure out how to beat the Lich and they are paralyzed for life, that's an amazingly bad consequence. So they most certainly should be able to have the opportunity to outsmart him before he makes that terrible thing happen. I even talk about this with the Basilisk. There's a reason, even if it's a lower level uh, encounter, there's a reason the Basilisk has stone to flesh, flesh to stone at such a low CR. It's because there's a way to get around it. Even if he does make you stone, you can use his blood to unstone you. There's always things like that if you 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 revel in your players figuring it out and it makes more interesting things when the wizard has access to level 4 spells. Awesome things happen. I think it may be a level 5 spell where a meteor crashes from the sky or he makes a giant tidal wave and it wa you can wash away all the super big monsters and then he clears the field or he black tentacles up the place and just you just oh and everything's changed and different and it's so much fun in my experience having the higher levels having the more abilities that your players have and the more options for them and the more options for their enemies to face make for a different encounter every time i could run the same encounter three times in a row to be different each time because depending on what they use at any given moment, what the initiatives turn out to be. Initiatives can be a big, big, big game changer and something where everybody can do anything. Initiatives are obscenely powerful. Initiative matters so much late game. When you have a higher initiative than that wizard that's about to cast the, was it Dancing Colors? What was it? Prismatic Spray. Prismatic Spray, and then, like, you get behind him, and now he has to choose, like, he has, oh, I can't use Prismatic Spray, because if I do, I'm going to get wrecked by the guy behind me. I have to cast a different spell. You could change the whole course of that encounter just by your initiative was first. Things like that happen. But I want to encourage you, Christian, to do something. I want, uh, I want you to try to find a good GM that you really, really trust and do a a 10 plus level campaign and then come back to us and see if your mind's changed at all well i mean i've dm'd 10 plus campaigns i've played in 10 plus campaigns i just got done with a 10 plus okay. campaign actually and it's just you know throughout all those i find that it is like you say that we have all this cool stuff to use and these cool options available to us and i find that it it kind of becomes binary in that either the enemy has this thing and the players don't have the appropriate tool to overcome it in which case it's either going to be a tpk or it's going to be this really really long drawn out fight because they have to do it in the least optimal way possible like hack through a wall of force because you didn't have a rod of annihilation mm -hmm. or the players have their really cool powerful options available to them and the opponent doesn't have a way to resist it so they just get stomped it tends to be stompy, and I don't like stompy stuff. I just find it requires insane amounts of DM Fiat to make high-level interesting, because you can't. You have to think of reasons why the wizard isn't the one to solve the problem. I'll give you that, that 
you for higher level you need more gm thought and planning into it my higher level encounter surely did take more thought than my low level ones and to run it more interesting and more fun where you make the battlefield in such a way that the wall of force doesn't completely block them off but makes them right. take a side route that maybe now they're they're bottlenecked that way if they do have something they can stop themselves from being bottlenecked but if they don't have something at least they still have an ability to get past it even if it's a, a way that might get them hurt or more damage than they would have if they had a, an answer for it i think it's it's the gm does have it's it's a heavy burden on the gm certainly like, and it was, that's an example of something that did happen that kind of solidified it in my mind and that I was just running this dude. He was a wizard. I didn't, I looked at his stuff beforehand. I was like, okay, that's neat. It shouldn't be anything that much of a problem. He got backed into a corner and he like just spur of the moment. I didn't think of this beforehand. I was like, okay, he's going to call it cast wall of force and trap himself in the corner and hope that the PCs don't have a way around it. And my players didn't have a way around it. So they just had this wizard who could freely move between, because he had teleport by then also, who was basically invincible behind this wall, casting stuff at them. And they just kind of had to sit there and hack away at the wall of force for like 10 rounds. And eventually I just said, okay, the, the wall's down because they, they weren't even halfway through it by mm. then because of the way wall of force works. I was like, you, you chopped through it. I'm so done with this. And, and it sounds to me like maybe you just had some bad experiences. There's things as a GM or as a player you could do differently to make those things not as crippling and as, as unfun. Because, again, we want the thing to be fun, challenging, realistic, exactly. but still fun for the player and the GM running it. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we're yelling at each other. I'm glad we had something <laughs> we disagree pretty heavily on. You know what our listeners can do? They can write into us and tell us who they support. And then, you know, we'll have a little tally. Who's, who's better, you or me? But I have a question for you, Christian, because we know I'm better. Uh, which... I've never been better okay. than anyone at anything. So uh got a question for you. Do you ever feel like your hands are tied when it comes to leveling up during pre-mades that you can't really have any freedom with it because the pre-made says, you know, they need to be this level to this level through the encounter or through the campaign? So like like I said last episode, the the pre-written campaigns aren't necessarily linear. They are non-linear by fashion. In fact, so there's entire chapters that are meant, they even say like you can go about this in any order. It does not matter. But, you know, eventually they're going to end up over here some way or another. But the problem is, is that it's written linearly and there's certain, they say you can use the fast track XP, you can use the medium track XP. And then they say, but we're going to tell you when they would be leveling up, like mm. when they would be leveling up if they were using the medium track XP. And that's written into the book linearly. So even though chapter three, you can do any of the sub chapters one through seven in any order, you know, sub chapter seven is assuming that you've done subchapters one through six. It's like, okay, so these challenges are all designed as if they are level, you know, eight instead of level six. And that does tend to be a problem. If my players did stuff out of order, I kind of had to start messing with the levels of creatures that were there because they were too powerful or too weak. Gotcha. Since I haven't done pre-mates, I've never, I haven't had to experience, well, I guess I can't level them up. But at least I like how they they give you opportunity before a certain point where they're going to do, you can do in any order, but then at this point you have to have leveled up. At least they give you some freedom. Christian, I want to talk about how we pick our players. I've said a couple times before that I'm very choosy with how I pick my players because I've been burned in the past. Our House Rules episode, I talk about um, how I don't pick couples and the reasons for that. Everyone's like, Caleb, angry at Caleb. Hey, yell at him. Go listen to the episode, and then you can yell at me more, a more informed yell at me. Uh, player types in conflict, I talk about how I pick certain player types. 
I won't let a lump in my game. I absolutely will no longer allow an antagonist in my game. What are lumps and antagonists? Go there, figure it out. Listeners pretty much know how I pick my players. How do you pick your players? Well, the one way it really worked is, um, as I said before, I DM'd at my university at college. I went to gaming club and there was a lot of people there. We had way too many people. Um, so much that we had to split into two different groups and the two different groups are too big. Thankfully, people started um, graduating and it started to shrink a bit. But I was a player at first and then I became a DM. And all I did was I looked at the people I had the most fun playing with and the people I thought took it the most seriously. Hmm. And I invited them to my game. I was like, hey, I'm going to be DMing now and I'd like you to be there. And it's honestly, it's kind of mean. I just didn't invite the people that I didn't personally like because I was the GM of the game and if I don't like the person I kind of didn't want and like them you there said, and I'm probably going to kind of mean it's only kind of mean it makes a lot of sense I'm going to spend right. three hours a week with you if I don't like you it's just going to be bad for everyone involved like I just there's people and I was like yeah I'm definitely not playing with the guy who threw dice across the right. table on more than one occasion I'm not inviting that guy mm-hmm. it was kind of common sense from there but then I have this core group of people I play with that's probably like eight people God. And then I have to pick between them because I can't have eight people campaigns. When I run stuff, I have to pick between them. Right. And the big way I pick that is the um, atmosphere of the campaign. Some people are more into serious stuff. Some right. people are more into um, sillier stuff. And that's really where I make the divide. All right. And something that's important when I pick my players, something I have to do for me when I start a campaign, is that I make sure that all of my players have access to all the information that they need in order to be a member of my campaign. If there is a backstory for the world, I'm going to put it on a Google Doc. I'm going to make sure everyone has that link available to them. I'm going to have, always going to have a sheet that says, you know, what level they should be, you know, how much gold they should have, things like that, or what they start as. And like, are we doing one half rolls for HP? Are we doing background skill system? I always make sure there's a document that has all this information on it, and I make sure it's available to the players. Not only the different specific choices you can make as a GM for character creation, but your house rules as well. Right. I do a similar thing. Not only do I do that, but in addition, before I play with somebody, I give them a document to fill out. And this is after we've created their character, and here's what the document says. We've created your character, his looks and abilities, and we're nearly ready to play. We just have to do a few things. Answer the questions and follow the instructions below and send this back to me. Number one, order the following list from what sounds the most interesting to the least interesting to you. Combat, intrigue, puzzles, romance, politics. Now this, of course, as you'd expect, there is whatever five factorial is number of different combinations I can get here, right? 120. Oh my gosh, really? Is that right? That can't be right. I think it's five plus four plus three plus two, which I don't know what that's called. Whatever. I was wrong. It's not five factorial. But there is a diverse range of answers that can be, right? Someone someone who's, you know, you don't even need like a math major. Just someone who has had one statistic class that they were awake for. Apparently, I wasn't awake for mine. Or even maybe, I don't know, basic algebra. Darn it. My teacher, Mrs. Akampa, always said I need algebra and I finally need it. I should have listened. It's 15. It's 15. It, it is 5 plus 4 plus 3 plus 2 plus Ah, uh, ha Thank you, Christian. <laughs> 15 different combinations. Uh, very important that I let everybody know the exact number of, of combinations. Glad we got that through. <laughs> but because of that, I, I, I'm trying to cater to that list, but I tell my players, say, because I'm playing with four different people, I got four different answers. So your, your number one, which was like combat, was Johnny's number five. So I have to kind of balance that out. So there are times you're going to have to deal with things that maybe aren't your favorite, but you're going to have to deal with it because other players, it is their favorite or it's their number two. But I'm going to do, I'm going to do my best to care to everybody to make sure everybody's number one happens at points 
and at different percentages. If everybody's number one's combat, you better believe I'm throwing a ton of combat in there. If everyone's number five is romance, I'm not throwing any romance in the game because nobody wants it. That's interesting. I've never done that, but I might try that next time. I think that's really cool. And you know what? I'm sure you guys, everyone at home can think of a better list of, of subjects, but that's just the one I came up with. I'd love to hear what your guys are, and maybe I'll change mine to something better, right? The next question, provide a backstory for your character. Some ideas to help. What was your childhood like? Did you grow up in a small town or in a big city? Were you an orphan or did you have both parents? How did you learn to fight? Part of the local militia or was the apprentice of a great swordsman? Apprentice. You weren't the apprentice because an apprentice isn't a thing. And it has nothing to do with Trump. Don't <laughs> even think about it. But that sort of thing. Look at your class, your traits, and feats. Sometimes they can help you get your creative juices flowing. You have a lot of freedom with your backstory, so go wild. We talked about it in character creation. Traits is a thing that you can make entirely about roleplay. And then I asked them to provide a picture of their character. It could be a picture they found online or one you've drawn. It doesn't have to exactly reflect your character. Just an idea. Now, I am not as serious as our previous guest, Kyle Ferguson. He was in a romance episode, our 5,000 celebration episode. He talks about, it's game time. Put your phones in this basket. Turn off the lights. Light the candles. Everyone put on your you know, your costumes. It's time to play. I'm not quite <laughs> that serious, but I, am, I'm, I relate to him a lot. I do a serious, as I told you about, I have a grip hold on that storytelling way of playing the game. So I kind of make it very serious about the storytelling stuff. But we still have jokes and entertainment. I talked about when we had eight-hour sessions. At lunchtime, we watched a bunch of funny videos, right? Or we talked about Hearthstone or how Raynad's so salty because he is and he's the best. <laughs> but I got a question for you, Christian. This is a serious question and I want the truth, okay? You ready for? Are you ready to give me some truth? Uh, I mean, maybe. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You're going to give it to me. When I played in your game... Was there a problem because of the way I played? I know I, I made a lot of jokes, which I, I which is different than the way I usually played. I was making a lot of jokes. I was doing some things that were kind of in conflict with the rest of the players. Was that a problem? Um, I'd say right off the bat, the jokes definitely weren't. That's all we do, really. <laughs> it, that in itself is a problem, and we need to cut down the jokes. But you, you weren't different in that aspect. Uh, we all did that. But the other bit, I would say that um, being confrontational with the party, that was, in a ways, a problem. And you see there how, how well Christian and I get together. Listen, when we were recording the 100 series and half of the 200 and almost all of the, I think all of the um, ACG series, Advanced Class Guy classes, we were very intimate. We were, like, right next to each other. Our faces were, like, touching half the time trying to record <laughs> on one microphone. We get together well. We've done all this whole series well. We're good friends unless Christian's lying to me and he's going <gasps> to... As soon as the 200 series ends, are you leaving me? Christian, are you breaking up with me? No, no, no. And you, I lied. You were great in that game. Oh, my God. <laughs> you were my favorite, and we, I never talked to you about it or anything. That didn't happen. You imagine that? So here's oh the deal. We're, we're good friends, and, you know, still some problems can occur. I behaved in a way that was not christian's preference and which created problems and we had to have a talk about this there was a time when we talked about caleb you did this and it was no good for anybody and it was a it was a real conversation this was like and the good thing is we're both italian so like when we're yelling at each other we know we're not yelling at each other with other people but like oh my gosh they're like really are they gonna kill each other we were just like this is the way we were talking to one another right uh it's a good thing we, were, we both have that same mindset but this kind of stuff happens and Christian did the best he could to choose ahead of time. I get along with Caleb, so I think I'll get along with playing uh, with him playing in my game. Plus, he has an awesome basement. Even though it's unfinished, it's got a big table, and that's all we need. <laughs> uh, still, something happened. And, you know, we talk about in, 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 in player types and conflict, how to deal with it. But even when you pick your characters, you're going to have problems because humans are humans and make mistakes or we do something that just isn't 
optimal when it comes to actual relations with people. All right, guys. In the end, we are just a bunch of neckbeards in basements, right? We got it. We got it. We got it. We, sometimes we we, shed, we shave the beard. We walk upstairs. But in the end, that's in our hearts, guys. That's that's right here. All right. That's close to us. And we got to deal with that. I mean, and look at how much me and Caleb agree on philosophy wise mm-hmm. here, both playing the game and um, DMing the game. We agree on the vast majority of stuff. And still, there's sometimes conflict. Right. The, the point is that's that's normal human relation. In the end, I had a great time playing the game. And you can answer without you had a great time GMing with me in it. I mean, I still had fun, and although I think you took it too far, I, th- I like I say, a lot of it stems from a healthy way to play the game. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of stuff you did was very valid, and I thought very interesting, it just sometimes went too far. Right. And, and and honestly, that's a result of me being a GM more than I am a player. I, I've, I've done a lot more playing recently, and hopefully I've learned some lessons to make sure everyone's having a fun time, not just me, jackass. Uh, <laughs> what's my conclusion here? I don't know, I'm rambling. <laughs> I have no conclusion. I never do. You're invited. You'll be invited to my next game online, Caleb. Great, great, great. I don't have I don't have a table anymore, so I got not, I don't have that to offer. Just find me a picture of a nice, oh. one, like a real nice. <laughs> you ever seen table. those? Ga- oh my gosh, I saw it on Reddit. Yes, I looked at Reddit one time. But don't worry, I re- I reposted Good, it on finally. Funny Junk. Uh, it was a table, and <laughs> you're the worst kind of person. <laughs> Listen. That's what <laughs> did you watermark it too? No, that's no, I removed the watermark. Uh, that's what funny junk is. I don't have to go to Reddit and nine gag. Oh, I gag almost saying that. Uh, and all those different places because it all just gets reposted on funny junk. It's all the internet right there. All the funny kitty pictures right there. Is there a lot of furry porn? Yes, but you just hit next and you ignore it. Did Zootopia <laughs> create a whole new breed of furries? Yes, but that's beside the point. Um, I saw on Reddit this table. It was really, really cool. Uh, the guy had put, like, a, a screen underneath it and glass on top of it. And that way he could just connect it to his laptop. And then he could make, like, you know, how Roll20 has, like, that digital gamepad. He could have it there. Or when he wanted to show a picture, he could just show it right on the table. And since it was a clear top, you could put your tokens on there. That was really cool. That's a table I need to have. I've seen that a few times, but I've I heard claims that, like, it's an LED screen, like, it's not supposed to be horizontal. I don't know. I'd have to look into the logistics of it. Oh, that That's you, Christian. Like, can't just say it's cool. You gotta be like, I'm not it sure is cool. It is cool. That's But, I mean, if I'm spending $500 <laughs> on an LED television, I don't want it to, like, ink out on me. <laughs> this is this is a good point. And uh, I remember seeing Acquisitions Incorporated, which is, like, an official D&D actual play when they did their stuff live at pax which boy i always look forward to that because chris perkins jams it and there's really funny people on there the guys who do obviously pax and penny arcade and uh and what's his face was on it a lot will wheaton was on it real funny but anyway they uh, have like a from a, some gaming company made this gaming table with like little under sets where you can fit your laptop in without taking up table space or your character sheet there's some real cool tables out there and you know what i need that in my I need that in my and life really badly. We're going to be talking all about that in one of our first episodes uh, of the 300 series we're doing, guys. We'll talk about that now. I know we have one more episode of 200 series left, but in the 300 series, as what we're calling advanced topics, one of them is about miniatures and dice and you know different gaming paraphernalia. And I'm sure we'll talk about different like that. We're going to have two guests on that, and they're both name, uh, both of their names are Chris. That's right. We will have three Chris's on the episode. Even though, has anyone ever called you Chris, Christian? Um, it's this weird backwards thing. My parents call me by my shortened name, Chris, and everyone calls me by my lengthened name, Christian. So, like, you know, normally when Alex gets in trouble, his parents are like, Alexander! It's backwards for me. When Christian gets in trouble, it's, Chris, get down here! If other people <laughs> call me Chris, it freaks me out because, or actually, I don't respond because they're not my parents. <laughs> So, like, they say Chris, and I just don't recognize him. I don't have a middle name, so whenever my parents 
yelled up for me. It was a gamble. Caleb Garofolo. Oh no, is dinner ready or am I in trouble? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Oh, I don't have a middle name either. Wow, we we're too much alike, Caleb. <laughs> but in conclusion, for this, when it comes to philosophies, you don't have to sit down and write like out a whole document about your philosophy. Republic of Caleb but, and Christian and what we believe are how to play the game. But they are things to consider because a lot of people that you know, make mistakes when they first start DMing or a lot of people who have um, bad points of DMing is because they fall on a side of a philosophy that people don't agree on. So maybe even consult your table, you know, take up some of the topics we talk about and see how they feel about it. Yeah, definitely. The reason we ended on how we choose our players is because each GM has a, a partnership that matches up with a certain kind of player. And when you don't have that right, you create conflict or it's just nobody has fun. So the way that you identify your philosophy and then identify the kind of players that enjoy that and then match that up. Like you were saying, with when you pick your players, if you run a serious campaign, you have the serious guys. And it took you a while, right? You had to play with a lot of guys. So you found your key group of like these eight people. We meshed together so well. Right. All right, guys. The next episode is the final episode of our 200 series, 211 Storytelling Tips with Alex from Tales from the Lich, formerly Softly Speaking Sanskrit. I'm so excited. Literally, pretty much my two favorite episodes we recorded was the 5,000 Celebration with him and the Character Creation Extra Credit we did with him. I am super looking forward to this episode, guys, and I hope you listen to it. It's the final part of, like, the last three episodes. going to put that, that bow on that package that we've started to make here, guys. You know, after the 200 series, I'm out of here like Casablanca. <laughs> I don't understand that reference because I'm not cultured. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs> Class is dismissed. I'm not leaving. No, I'm staying. <laughs> you have to go, Christian. It was a joke. You have no. to go. I don't want to go on you the plane. Hear... Richard, no. Don't you hear the sound effects of the chairs? People are getting up. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great Pathfinder podcasts, visit our site, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? You can email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. I've been Nicholas Laborde. Thanks for listening. Hey, Jacob, you want to play some D&D tonight? I can't. Uh, I have to go make love to my wife tonight. You know, I don't even know if I love her anymore. I don't really know her. Like, what am I going to do? Someone should tell Jacob that people change, and it takes effort to stay connected with someone. But in the meantime, the fellows at Tales from the Lich always stay connected through gaming and friendship. When you can't play, listen. TalesFromTheLich.com Hey, uh, happy Valentine's Day.